There was a mortifying uh, moment when I was a um, little boy, littler boy, uh, many years ago when I was in school and um, I had something I wanted to read out and it was my poem. And everyone looked at me slightly puzzled going, what's your poem? Because poem was how we said poem at Guglani household. Um, and I rapidly realized that poem was not how poem was spoken. But after that mortifying moment, which created a lot of humiliating laughter, which is still etched, <laughs> there were other realizations that other words um, had um, echoes and mirrors in both languages. So typically words like shetan for devil and Satan um, and uh, chemise and kameez, these words were reappearing from home and at school in different guises. And it, for many years, it was always very interesting to me how East meets West and that confluence. Um, so it was with great um, joy that I read this book uh, many years ago as a junior doctor, Philip Marsden's The Spirit Wrestlers, which dwells in the Caucasus and this melting pot of East and West. Philip is a uh, renowned uh, travel writer, uh, as well as writer of fiction. Um, and after many years of traveling all over the world, he now lives uh, in the tidal upper reaches of the River Fowl in Cornwall with his wife, his children, and a number of boats. And Philip is here now to talk to us about place. Philip. <laughs> I wondered if we might start, Philip, with the Caucasus. Um, and much like early on when we were talking about the black country and Punjab with Liz and Mona, where is the Caucasus? The Caucasus. Oh, um, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I didn't, don't want to correct you. I'm off. You just <laughs> um, Kafkas. They keep updating it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, the Caucasus, well, it's, it's, it's a mountain range in, um, between uh, the, the republics of, of Georgia, Azerbaijan, and, and Russia now. Um, and it runs between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Um, it's, it's one of those sort of rather arbitrary borders between Europe and Asia, for whatever that means. And, and one of those sort of schoolboy questions about what's the highest mountain in, in Europe. And it's, it's Mount Elborus, which is, which is one of the, the, high, well, the highest peak in the, in, in the Caucasus. So it, it operates as this, this border, I think, between, um, I mean, not so much between East and West, but... Um, between, between Russia's north, the Christian north, um, and Georgia and Armenia to the south, but it's, it's, it is that sort of crossing place, if you like, between, between the Islamic, the Eastern world, and the, uh, and the Christian world. And like all those places, has a sort of history of bloodshed and squabblings, and, and when, the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was, it was there that, that some of the most um, sort of tragic conflicts broke out. Uh, it's a tremendous um, mixing place of, of, of ethnicities and languages. Mm. They say every, every valley has a different, different language. Mm. Um, and it was that that attracted me. I mean, it has this, this, this sort of melting pot uh, strength to it. The fact that it was, when you say it was that that attracted you, almost the nebulous nature of um, the culture that inhabited it, it wasn't one thing or the other. No, I mean, I, I, I wanted to write about, about, about Russia. Um, I spent some time in Armenia, um, but in the early 90s, which is when this, this book was, was done, the breakup of the Soviet Union was the big sort of fact, and, and it opened up a whole lot of places which were, which were hitherto inaccessible. And so I went to Moscow to try and sort of put together 
how to encapsulate this, this mm. extraordinary bit of territory of fifth of the world's landmass. And immediately I find myself going to the, uh, attracted to the edge of it. Mm. Um, not just the Caucasus, but that bit between the, the Caspian and the Black Sea, um, the sort of Russian steppe, where uh, people, dissenters, um, sort of rushed to. And, and I, I found myself again in, in Moscow at that time. One of the legacies of, of, of the sort of Soviet period was to, was to sort of uniform everything. And I had this sort of thirst for diversity. And one of the things about the Caucasus and the, and the steppe was that it's, it, it's, it, it's where sort of non-conformist Russian believers have gone. Um, the the Dukobotsi, the mm. spirit wrestlers, the old believers, um, the Molokans, all these sort of sects which, which seem to sort of defy the, the, the sort of Soviet um, homogene homogeneity. Um, and I sort of had a thirst for, for to sort of uncover those. You talk about wanting to go to the edge of it. One of the Dukobots, my friend, I got to pronounce this right. Dukobots, yeah. <laughs> Actually, refers to it as the edge of the world. Exactly. Yeah. Which, 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 if you're in Moscow, it is. I mean, that's the that, that's the sort of southern edge of the Russian Empire, the Soviet Empire, as it, as it became. And these Russians, um, the Dukobots, had sort of been exiled and pushed right to the edge um, of of northern Armenia. Um, and that's how it feels in Moscow, the edge of the world. I mean, as well as the meeting of Asia and Europe, as well as that, that, that confluence, there's also a very clear sense reading this that there's, as you say, terrible um, history of terrible violence yeah. and persecution, but then up against a very strong um, sense of uh, religious fervor and yeah. belief, yeah. almost magical Yes. thinking, in yes. fact, yes. Um, and, a, and a nomadic race against then the imposition of very clear boundaries, structures, social structures, as yeah. well as geographic ones. Yes. That meeting um, is, is for some reason very moving because it's, it, it's not quite an old world, is it? But, it, the, well, it is, it's an ancient... Yes, I mean, belief, again, I mean, belief you know, the, uh, the, the whole Soviet period, in, the, in a sense, was an exercise in belief in, in, in Marxist Leninism, and the idea that... that, that Perfection would come with the right with the right sort of mm. social policies, yes. and it, it failed. And obviously, that that, that, that was manifest. But I, I was very interested in this in this tradition um, of, of the sort of depth and passion of, of, of Russian belief and how it defied the state. The old believers, who are a big group of dissenters, um, broke away from the, 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 the Russian Church when it began to sort of coalesce with the state, and they formed this sort of groups who, who are still sort of at large, if you like, in Siberia and the, uh, the South, that answered directly to God. I mean, in the, in the way of, of, of a lot of religious dissenters, they, they, they didn't like the state in position. And so again, it was a sense of, of, of sort of what everything that the Soviet Union wasn't, these villages, mm. these beliefs represented. Um, and is that, yeah. is that why, do you think, there was, I mean, I guess this must be the case, when you say it was a particular hotbed of persecution, presumably it was in response to that. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, it, the, the Ukrainian famine is, is well known, but the, the, um, the, uh, the, the policies, the, the kulakization of, of um, uh, and, and the, the, uh, the collective farms, the collectivization of, of the 1930s, resulted in a, in a huge uh, famine in, in this step between Caspian and the Black Sea, as well as as well as in the Ukraine, for the same reasons. And, and in a way, it was it, it was often against the Cossacks, against any group that sort of were, were going to assert their identity against against the sort of Soviet um, the Soviet state. And the religion was Christian, or yeah. I mean, largely but with mysticism Christian. attached. Well, of course, I mean, I in the Caucasus itself, on the slope of the Caucasus, you have you have a huge number of of, of sort of Islamic states as well, and, mm. and little statelets. Um, but the uh, but the Russians were. 
some form of Christianity. I mean, there were the, the mm. Molokans and the, um, the Dukabutsi who were like the, um, the Quakers, the sort of, and, and then the old believers, very, very devout Russian Orthodox. Um, so it was Christian, but again, you have, you know, very fervent, I mean, there was a, a few years ago, there was, well, it's, it's still going on, but the idea of making a sort of trans-Caucasian um, sort of Islamic caliphate, um, and that's still sort of bubbling away and behind some of the, the sort of smaller states that their, their political sort of and, and religious assertions. And but within that religion, huge amounts of ritual, yeah? yeah. And um, in fact, the ritual, I've got a quote here, that, that one, of, one of the um, people we meet in the book talk about words being a necessary path for them, that ri the ritualism and a language attached to rituals is almost part of a map of that terrain for them. Yes, I mean, um, well, words, you know, as, as in all, all the, the three, three sort of faces of the, of the word, I mean, they're tremendously important. And, and, and the, the language of the mass was one of the things over which the old believers and the, and the, and the conventional elements of the church sort of dissented over. So language was, yes, was an assertion like that. But, um, and, but their, their, their view of the world was very linked to the sense of place. Yes. Well, Much it was. Like yes. That I mean, true? I um, well, actually, w w one of the things I, <laughs> that, and I, I was looking. It's 20 years since I wrote this book, so I was sort of re revisiting it. And one of the things I remember about it, and one of the things I tried to sort of get across, was this sort of lovely, um, sort of elision of the of the real and the unreal, and, and the way that sort hmm. of there's a sort of fairy tale view of the world, which is which is hard against the sort of realities, and and, and they are pretty harsh realities of uh, of life there. Yes. They came this sort of magical sort of element into, into stories and things. And, and I, I've always been very interested, I've traveled a lot in Ethiopia and there's a similar mm. thing where, where you know, you're talking to someone and suddenly they're, they're sort of talking about something which is completely magical and it, it, there, there's no sort of border between yes. it. Um, so that, that's, that's something that I, I find very appealing. I mean, who couldn't? <laughs> well, taking that then, so let's, so mm. taking that and thinking now about the whole business of place and our relationship yeah. as, human persons yeah. to place yeah. um, and moving it away from you know um, the Caucasus to somewhere more pedestrian let's say Cornwall <laughs> yeah pedestrian so yes what <laughs> maybe tell me then about that let's talk about that a bit we, we think about space we think about the geography of space but yeah. when you're talking about place you're describing something other to simply space yeah, it was, it was an idea that arose actually during the writing of this book. I, I, I wanted to write, I live in Cornwall, I've, I've always had a sort of um, attraction to it, and, and this book is about, it's about landscape and, and, and Cornwall, about the sort of meaning and the history of landscape and how we've, we've sort of reinterpreted landscape with different eras, and I think we're in a period now when we're sort of looking at it in a, in a different way. Um, and it was only actually later, later in the writing of this book that, 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 that the idea of place seemed to unite all this, and I, um, uh, there's a, there's a, a reading here about something I stumbled on quite, quite late on about the distinction between place and space, and it sort of highlights what it is. Um, one of the drivers of this book was, uh, was moving to a, a, a sort of rather run-down Cornish farmhouse at, at the end of a bumpy track, and I, I had that sensation that when I, when I first saw it that I completely fell in love with this, and it was, I mean, physically, and I, I realized the, alar the alarming sense of falling in love with the place is exactly that. It's, it, it's all those sort of palpitations and the mood swings. It was like a sort of teenage, um, unrequited uh, love affair, <laughs> um, and which went on for two years, which is boring sort of, um, you know, property stuff. But anyway, I, I, it, it, it highlighted for me just how powerful 
place can uh, what a, what a, what a, um, an element it, it has in our in our lives. So this short little passage explains the sort of some of the thinking behind it. Some years ago, in the pages of academic books and journals, there was a good deal of discussion about the difference between space and place. Very loosely, and definitions form a large part of such scholarly argy-bargy, place is somewhere distinctive, where people react to and live with the particular topography around them. Space, on the other hand, is an idealized location, abstracted from the real world, a template which can be dropped over any point on the Earth's surface and allow meaningful discourse about it. Most of the recent work on the subject is driven by the conviction that place has been having a hard time of it for too long and that space should now just move over. The political geographer Arturo Escobar was not alone in finding that the imbalance could be traced far back into the history of ideas. He wrote, since Plato, Western philosophy oftentimes with the help of theology and physics, has enshrined space as the absolute, unlimited and universal, while banning place to the realm of the particular, the limited, the local and the bound. The long-term emphasis on space has had unforeseen consequences. Monoculture and farming, homogeneous housing, duplicated shopping malls, biodepletion, and the catastrophic destruction of habitats, the abiding sameness that characterizes contemporary life. What appealed to me as I settled into the orbit of my new life was that for many of these professors of social science, the idea of place appeared to rise above the utility-carpeted corridors of their faculties and offer instruction in the very practice of living. To be human, wrote Tim Cresswell of the University of Wales, is to be in place. Edward Casey is professor of philosophy at the State University of New York, and he wrote, to live is to live locally and know, first of all, the place one is in. Thank you. And the interesting thing there is, and when you say, so you talk also in, in this book about um, a historic inclination towards vertical, um, vertical access of place, yeah. and that becoming increasingly Horizontal. Yes. Just say a bit more about well, that. Well, yes. I mean, it's it, it's it's this whole sort of. I mean, this, it touches on that between the, between the local and the abstract, between the local and the global, if you like. And there was a there's a um, a geographer called Yifu Tuan who wrote a book, lovely book called Topophilia, um, which is love a place. Obviously, literally, it's a it's a term coined by Auden to begin with, um, and described sort of my um, my love of place. And he described this 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 historical distinction. Yes, between eras and, and people who, for the most, for most of history, we've only known those areas which we could walk to in half a day, for instance, or we could see visually, so maybe a sort of orbit of 50 miles. But that's completely changed now. I mean, we're not only do we have infinite access to, to, to transport, we have cyberspace. So that notion of the local being the whole world, and he, he made this interesting idea that actually if you live in that particular, then you're your bigger reference is, is vertical, as he put it, mm. i.e. To, to, to the divine, to gods, and to abstraction in that sense. And perhaps our abstraction is, is, is horizontal and towards sort of trying to make sense of this huge bit of space that we, that we are aware of. So with, with that in mind, and 
going back, let's look, look, let's look at this historically and look at a lot of um, a lot of the world, a lot of Cornwall, yeah. a lot of Europe, populated with these structures, these structures from yeah. the Neolithic period in history. Just tell me when that was. Well, the, I mean, the, uh, the Neolithic, sort of third, fourth millennium BC, um, and the period that, that I was particularly interested in, I, I mentioned this sort of this rather ambitious notion of trying to, to get a history of the way that the landscape is seen. Um, and I sort of strung it on this walk through, through Cornwall. But what was interesting is that during the Neolithic period and the early Bronze Age, uh, with the emergence of, of the stone monuments that we know, stone rows, stone, stone circles, um, curses, is that, I mean, I spent quite a lot of time, I'm not an archaeologist, but I spent a lot of time with archaeologists for the writing of this book. And then their most recent interpretation is about how these monuments refer to each other and more, more importantly refer to particular topographic features mm. in the landscape. Um, so that you end up not with just single monuments as we have now, but whole areas of sacred landscape. Um, Why sacred? Well, because they were, because these, <laughs> uh, these monuments seem to have no, no practical function. That's, that's the point, they're not domestic. In fact, they're the, early, they're the earliest architecture. They're seen as the early architecture and they predate any domestic, uh, any remnants of domestic um, architecture, and they, they, I mean, but by default, they're, they're ritual, um, you know, having rows of stones and circles of stones. Uh, and I think, I mean, what I find most moving about it was that if one can believe that, that, that they are um, referring to particular things and their sight lines to, to, to sort of peaks and things, then being there, just walking them, walking these, these sight lines or walking the, the stone rows, we can somehow feel as they did 5,000 years ago. Uh, to what extent is that inference when we say that there's sight lines that, that, that um, you know, lining up with um, sunrise at the solstice, etc. What extent is that us inferring this? Or is it, in fact, too much, <laughs> too coincidental <laughs> to be anything other than that? I mean, as soon as you mention these Neolithic monuments and Stonehenge and things, all sorts of, mm. all sorts of interpretations mm. and sort of kind of nonsense comes up. And the way that's interesting, mm. I think that's, you know, I, I tend to think that having sort of spent some time with these monuments and, and all the literature around them and interpretation. And what I like to think of them is not so much as sort of social, because there, there's a certain amount of sort of archaeoethnography whereby, um, you know, sort of priestly caste is, is inferred from there being walls, perhaps, and, mm. and, 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 and that. But um, that they were, um, well, they're, yes, they're, they're, they're ritual. Um, and their presence at certain points in the landscape is incontestable, yeah. isn't it? And looking at them, I think that we, we can understand them socially, but actually I, I like to think of them more as works of art. Mm. And in a way, they're about, they're about in the way that Walgrave Art is, is about reflecting the mysteries rather than sort of answering any questions. And, and I, I, I think if you look upon them like that, then all these kind of, all the crazy sort of interpretations are valid. And in a sense, they were themselves just somehow collective expressions of the mysteries and, uh, and often ancestral, often sort of it's thought sort of in reference to previous things. And I think that's what's, what's what most interested me about them was that in a sense you can look upon them as, as you know, what one particular period, okay, a, a group of people got together and built these. But very often what you find uh, is layers and layers and layers of, in, of interpretation and reinterpretation and response to these 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 monuments, and another group comes along and, and, and elaborates yes. on them. And you, I mean, and that you, you describe that very well. It almost gives one the sense of vertigo that for them to be built in a particular place was almost referencing previous 
uh, generations it, it was, and times. It was, and I think that's, that comes back to the notion of, of, of place and how we respond to place. Um, that, that these places would be, in an oral tradition, would be a place of stories, um, of, uh, of gatherings, perhaps to do with transhumans. You know, in the uplands, you'd bring flocks there, and, and groups of people would meet, um, and, and stories would be told. And I, and I, I love the idea of these, these sort of natural features in the landscape, mm. which we find very evocative. I, I certainly do. I mean, tours on, on, on the moors of Dartmoor. Um, that they generated stories, and traditions of stories, and those stories generated building of monuments and these extraordinary sort of um, difficult things of hoisting these great big rocks up. Um, and it was all to do with how the landscape looked and what you felt in that landscape. So what do you mean in both books, both books, um, and I wonder, uh, perhaps, you know, the, 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 the calling both these books here might feel arbitrary, but they're both talking about spirit, the spirit wrestlers and the spirit of place. Yeah. Um, I mean, the spirit wrestlers, I guess, is... Easier to, it's a translation of, yeah, uh, of, of Dukawa. Yeah. But what do we mean when we're talking about spirit? Well, it's, that's interesting. I mean, I think, it, and it's one of those, one of those words which, it, which is overused. Um, but I suppose, I mean, a phrase spirit of place, you, it, it, it's the abstract and the particular. So that, so that the place, if, if you take as, as a particular group of topographic features that you can see, and that's, that's as opposed to space. Spirit is everything that we feel perhaps which isn't there in the physical. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's that distinction between, between you know, what's physical and what, what isn't. So I think, I, and I think the spirit of place is, is, that, is that sort of dichotomy of, the, of those two elements. Um, you do talk, though, about this idea in there of um, accumulating layers yeah. of um, veneration for a place. Yeah. Um, not necessarily even formalized as pilgrimage, but that place has meaning, perhaps because of where it is, it then, you know, uh, a stone structure is attached to it, yep. it then garners further interest, uh, becomes a further nidus of attention almost, yeah. and that that somehow propagates through time and yeah. what, embeds, embeds the veneration? I'm trying, to, I'm being reductive doctor, but <laughs> what does it mean? What, what, what do you think? Well, I think it's about tradition, it's about I mean, it's about generating traditions, really. And I think, I think that one of the things about place is it, it's, it, it interests me. I mean, there's a thing between collective and, and personal places. Um, and we have, you know, personally, I mean, if you go to visit a grave, it's, it's a physical place, but it represents what that person means, means to you, a, a parent or, or a family member. But it's sort of embodied in that place. And I, and I think what's interesting is the way that we, we need we need that physical element to, to, to sort of respond to all these abstract ideas, the sort of spirit, spirit ideas. We need to fix it with, with, with place, with something physical. And people that don't have, I mean, mourning without a corpse or without a place is, is, is a whole different, different thing, a much more difficult thing to do. And I just wonder, though, if something about the accumulation isn't... And we, so we could sit here and say, well, fine, accumulated veneration, successive transgender people going to that place... Hence, spirit. But I just wonder if we are pointing to something slightly more, we may not have the language for it, but something slightly more mysterious almost in that connection of person, land, Frank, both, let's, yeah. not, let's not escape this, both matter, you yes. Know, both, yes. both grass, as Tim D has written. Yes. Yes. So it, we're pointing to something quite, um, the, the, the connection and maybe this is why we arrive at words like spirit. It's mm. quite hard to explain what we mean by that. Yes, I mean, um, 
I think it's personal. It's person I was very aware with writing about the spirits of place, and actually, um, there was a, a Jan Morris who reviewed it, saying the thing about spirits of place is that your spirit of place isn't my spirit of place, and and I think that's that's very true. I think that, but but I think what is what is um, true to to us all, both personally and collectively, is that place has this this formative and and sort of retrospective place in our lives, both as, as cultures and, and, as, and as individuals. And I think ha- what it is, how, what we attach to it, whether we, whether we believe in the sort of genus loci or, 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 or some sort of, you know, um, real spirit, uh, I don't know, that's personal. I didn't want to get into, into that mm. um, because it's, I don't know, you, when you're writing about these things, you, you're kind of inventing the rules and you have to find your own level. And I, I, I sort of avoided that, it's simply because personally I don't, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm a sort of realist, but I love the idea <laughs> that actually a physical place can, can, can induce this spiritual response and this sort of poetic response as well, and can, can bring out of us not just something immediate, but something that which, which is to do with stories and traditions and meanings and things. Um, and again, like, like a work of art, I think, I think you stand before a landscape, and what it does to you is, is what a great painting will do. It will, it will bring out of you all sorts of paradoxes and things that are going on and, and, and things that need to be resolved or don't need to be resolved but have pleasure in, in, in offering the, the promise of resolution. And I think, you know, in a way, this book is about walking around Cornwall and that's personally what I feel, feel about it. It, it. it sort of brings out this extraordinary response. And I think that's, that, that does resonate now as it did in the Neolithic period. Um, and if, if we believe it, if we can infer from the monuments that that's what they were, then we can see that this is actually something perhaps is, which is um, universal and, yes, and, uh, old, and timeless. And old, old and, fun yeah. and uh, integral to being human and integral to perceiving being human, exactly, the world. Yeah. And it uh, just has tremendous, I mean, it certainly adds a lot to, yeah, to, uh, to walking around Bodmin Moor or, or Dartmoor, the sense that this is this sort of transcendent quality to it. There's this great story that uh, you, you should tell it, if, if you wouldn't mind, rather than me, of um, Jonathan Raman um, Sailing of yes. the Pacific, yes, exactly, and yeah. which really epitomises. Do you mind telling it? No, not at all. No, I mean it was it was a quote from a book. He he was sailing um, uh, off the off the, off the um, Pacific coast, and um, he's in. No, I, I can answer. I, my most recent book is going to be about sailing up the west coast of Ireland, and, and I'm a nervous sailor. He's a nervous sailor, and I can identify with that. So he was he was sailing out quite early on when when he settled in Seattle, and. Um, the depth sander was on, and, and, and the sort of depths were, were <coughs> reassuringly deep. And, and suddenly he got into this thing, and, the, and it began to reduce. He was several miles off the, off the coast, and it began to reduce. He, he ran around the boat looking at the charts, looking at the depths, you know, looking at all the electronic charts, and trying to work out it was going up, down, and down, and down. down. Um, and you know, he was sure he was about to strike some, some reef, um, and nothing happened. And he realized that what, what, what had happened was that the continental shelf had just disappeared, and the depth sander because it couldn't find anything at all, was, was arbitrarily returning um, the, 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 the signals. And, yeah, it's... And a, creating. It's a, creating this sense, exactly. Creating something out of, out of nothing. And in a way, that's... I mean, it's, it, it's in Bodmin Moor, which is this lovely sort of empty, empty landscape. And I think, again, our response to it is, is somehow to respond to something that's very empty and very evocative by filling it with meaning <laughs> and sort of throwing in numbers, if you like, I mean, something like, like depth, and sort of getting it wrong. But actually, that's, that's our human impulse. We can't bear too much emptiness. And so we, we put meaning onto it. And what that particular meaning is is, is often very revealing. Um, and that's why studying 
the interpretation, the response to landscape, I think is sort of so, well, it's so rewarding in a way. But, but quite so that we are the depth sounders, aren't we? And then, and that we can, we can wonder about whether or not the meaning is subjective and, and how we glean meaning, but nonetheless, we want meaning. We want meaning, and it's inter actually, the interesting thing about that, of course, is numbers, and, uh, and, and, and numbers are very reassuring when you're looking for meaning. Um, but, they're, but in that sense, they're, 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 they're ambiguous. I, I just think it, it is one of those human impulses, and, and um, yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's something that, that through the various books I've written has, has interested me, how we, how we make meaning out of, out of the arbitrary and how, how these become traditions. And that the meaning then persists? Persists and develops, and, uh, and then because it's a tradition, reveals something which is, which is sort of timeless. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, in a way, there's a sense in a sort of galloping world we live in to sort of skew tradition. Yes. Um, but I, I find myself drawn back more and more to it. I was struck, um, the other thing that really struck me was, so if, we, if we're saying that we are their meaning-seeking creatures, and that there's at least, you know, a very clear view that much of this meaning is attached to place, I was struck by your elderly Armenian lady in the book, who's, yes. who's so recounting the, the massacre from 1915. Yes, 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 this was another book. Um, yeah, it was, it was one of those moments in, in sort of traveling that, that st stuck with me. I, I did a previous book about the Armenians and spent a lot of time traveling around the, the Armenian diaspora in the Middle East and Eastern Europe. Um, and in, in Syria, particularly, there were communities this was the 90s, and there were people still alive who, who'd survived the 1915 genocide. Um, and, and that was Otto, who was that? Who was yeah, the it, was the, it, it, it was the, it was 1915, the last sort of period of, um, behind the sort of First World War. Um, this problem of the Armenians was, was sort of solved by deporting them and massacring them in huge numbers, something that the, the, the Turkish government still de denies and makes, um, makes uh, a crime against the state to, to even to even mention it, actually. So it's still, the, the Armenians still have this sense of, of injustice, but a sort of denied injustice. Um, and it's, it, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible thing. But there was, um, so I interviewed a lot of people and, 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 um, and traveled to a lot of places. And uh, there were two things that happened, unlike the Holocaust, the, the Armenians lost their land and lost their lives at the same time. Uh, and there was a particular woman who told me a story about leaving Lake Van, the, as she was, she was a, a little girl, and she witnessed the, the the, the massacre of uh, a lot of her family, and she'd, she'd lived in uh, Aleppo ever since. Um, and she talked about these, these, these horrific things that she, that she remembered. But when she talked about Lake Van, it was a whole different register. Um, and I talked to her about this, and, and I realized that actually, in a sense, that the loss of the land was, and a lot of, a lot of the survivors sort of concurred on this, the loss of the land was a sort of, was more manifest than loss, the loss of their own family. And I find that sort of, you know, extraordinary. Um, you know, life obviously <laughs> means more than a few mountains and things, but it, 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 it's certainly something common that I, that, that I found uh, in that. And I think that, it, again, it's about the idea of place that, that it's something solid, something real, something you can see even if you can't return to it, she couldn't go back to it. And it perhaps gives gives expression to things that otherwise can't give expression to. So, so thinking about this, this lake, this mountain lake with the, 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 the mountains around it, thinking of that, that was the encapsulated everything that she'd lost for her. Um, and, but the land, the loss of the land, the loss of that 
uh, territory of eastern Anatolia and all the places within it for thousands of years. The Armenians had lived there, built churches there, had mm. graveyards there. Um, all that was lost, and um, and they can't go back. Mm. So it's it was in it's inter the land's integral to her sense of self, yeah. the story that she is. Which, which in a way, you know, to, to me and I'm sure to you know to a lot of us is kind of it's it, it's the wrong way round, and yet mm. it does sort of make sense because it it represents the physical aspect of, of something that's, that, that's, that's much bigger, even than one's own family. Um, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Extraordinary. Thank you so much.